The Ringer's music critic Rob Harvilla curates and explores 60 iconic songs from the 90s that define the decade. Rob is joined by a variety of guests to break it all down as they turn back the clock. Check out 60 songs that explain the 90s exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Hulu. Hey there. You know that Hulu has movies, right? Well, if you didn't, we're here to tell you Hulu has movies. Hulu has acclaimed movies like All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Meskel and Andrew Scott, Suncoast, starring Woody Harrelson and Laura Linney, and Cat Person with Amelia Jones and Nicholas Braun. So head over to Hulu if you like movies, because you guessed it, Hulu has movies. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser. But I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRigger.com and joining me on the other line at the drive-in, it's Andy Greenwald. I'm so excited to be recording with you today. It's just, it's, it's just a delight. Why? Because <laughs> this is a fun thing to do. I, I chat I, with my buddy. I love it too. It's just a, any reason today more than any other. I just, you know... We're still, I know we're coming out of things. Things are looking up. Bill de Blasio just declared it's the summer of New York, which is great. <laughs> Didn't he say he was like, I can't wait to get back to Times Square? Yeah, it's, well, it's a little, it's a little bit like he's eager to get the tourists back eating their New York pizza bagels. I, yeah. I, but I, I support it. But I'm saying, even though things are opening up, thankfully, and things seem to be improving in this country, generally it's a solitary professional existence until I see your smiling face and then Kaya's smiling face and then she leaves her face, but she's still here. So as always, great. we are produced by Kaya McMullen. And as we rarely are today, in fact, this is the first time we are joined today by Malcolm Spellman, the creator mm-hmm. of the Falcon and Winter Soldier. So it was really cool to be able to talk to Malcolm about the experience, not only of making the, I think, arguably the world's most popular TV show for the last month and a half, but working within the confines and also the like the the toy box of Marvel and what it is like for a writer to go through that process with the creative executives that they have over at Marvel with the roadmap that they have for the future movies and future shows and what you can and can't do. And so I thought it was a great conversation with Malcolm. So we've got that. And we've also got our usual Top Chef recap. As far as uh, other stuff that we're doing, as folks probably know by now, Andy and I are doing a sort of deep dive on the French series, The Bureau. We dropped our first episode covering the first two seasons of that show on Wednesday, and we'll we'll pick that up again in two weeks. I hope people are enjoying that if they have gotten a chance to check out the Bureau itself. I know it's a little bit of an expense, but it's really worth it. Yeah, I, I just, you know, I feel like I used to have some critic cred where I could spend some, some, some of my reward points on a show to try to get people to watch it when I was writing about shows for Grantland. I want to use whatever interest I've accrued or maybe like just the IRA, maybe my pension plan from those days. Let's just just let it let it loose on the show. Cash this it is out. one of the best shows of the century. I want everyone to watch it. Yeah. So we'll be doing episodes, seasons three and four, and then we'll cover five in a separate episode. And before we get into Top Chef and even the other news thing, I did want to run one thing by you, Chris. Um, 
I want you to know my most recent Google search tab. Sorry, no free ads. My most recent Ask Jeeves <laughs> was Do Raccoons Have Thumbs? Why? Because I had heard an urban legend that they did, and it's been on my mind because last night uh, there was a, a, a clanging sound on the old the old homestead. Yeah. The little house on the prairie here. and uh, But the gate was locked, so I figured it was an animal of some kind. That's fine. I, I, I embrace the natural world. But then moments later, I had to get something out of my car. So I went outside, opened the trunk, and I heard a rustling, and I turned around. And there was a big, beefy boy, big raccoon with a bag of trash that it had swiped from someone, chowing down. And it was the most contented outdoor dining experience I've observed since pre-pandemic. Did the raccoon say that what he was having ate well? (laughs) (laughs) Thought the texture was gummy. My feeling is, and I I like to revisit this every so often because I was critical of the use of wise animals on prestige dramas, and I had live animals on my show. You have to cook your food. The raccoon was fearless. You know what I mean? The raccoon actually, if you want to segue, the raccoon did have big big Richard Blaze walking into the quick fire kitchen energy. But was it weird that the raccoon wasn't worried at all about what I, I mean, most people aren't worried about me. But I just mean in general, I felt like I, I find that it, like over the last year, there there was that initial moment right when lockdown kind of kicked in, mm-hmm. where people were like, "Look at the like the the trees that are growing out of the buildings, like nature is healing stuff." Right, the and dolphins like, in the Venice canals. Yeah, right. And I think I have had a couple of weird interactions with uh, coyote packs in Los Angeles recently, where it's just like. They're just, they're not skittish at all. There's just like right. five or six coyotes standing in the middle of the road around the street, around the corner from my house. I, I thought a coyote pack in LA was a group of prank video filming YouTubers. <laughs> I, I was That's sure right. that they the were going to make some house. reference. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I guess, I mean, like, I think that they're, they've probably just gotten a little bit, a little chippy. They've gotten a little aggressive in the last couple of months. Do you think that my strategy of just sort of looking at it and then waving and then bringing one of my children out to watch it eat was you know what you're asking wise me choice yeah I, I'm not the the one on this podcast that's staring oh at a bear Kaya did I can you how was my behavior what should I have done in that moment well I think you should have tried to domesticate him because what? they have cute <laughs> you should have tried to feed him they have such cute little hands what if you handed him something and then he like took it in his little hands. Okay, this First is not all, what I what? expected. First of all, the raccoon can be rabid, right? Well, can it was they? clearly not rabid. It was chill, but it was already eating. First of all, that would have been rude, where I would have been like, no, no, I know you've chosen to eat at this trash restaurant. <laughs> but I, I got some incredible mirin, you could mirin have offered, marinade. <laughs> yeah. You could have offered him something for dessert. A palate cleanser. Of, of all the things, of all my takeaways from your bear encounter, I never thought you were team animal. You know what I mean? Oh. Like, you've come into this. Purely on the raccoon side. I'm big team animal. Actually, I had a raccoon in the yard of my apartment building like a few weeks ago. You mean you brought it there? Like you were <laughs> having an outdoor socially distanced drinks with the raccoon? You, you said you, you hosted it. The raccoon was like, I'm having so much social anxiety about the end of the lockdown. <laughs> and I was like, same. Let's have a little pre-dinner. Wow. Oh, my God. Okay, well, I, my head's been turned around. Thanks, everybody. I really, <laughs> I really have a different perspective. You never now. know where and these when, anecdotes might go. Kaya, are you available to take my call when the raccoon sinks its rabid teeth into my arm? Let me know when. Okay, appreciate it. Just pour the fancy bottle of tequila that the bear 
almost broke or did break over the wound. Andy, right? was there anything from the world of uh, entertainment that you'd like to cover before we get into? Are top you not today? entertained right now? <laughs> no, definitely. Yeah, I, I just the the thing that really caught my eye, and maybe people have seen it, and they should check it out if they haven't, was that uh, Joe Adalian over at New York Magazine and Vulture wrote a very long piece about something that is kind of it, it's it's come up on this podcast. It's a pet um, topic of ours. Basically, that Netflix, in its continuing attempts to innovate, is going to be, and they've actually already started to 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 roll it out. I think in select test markets, but they're going to be putting this as a feature on everyone's subscription soon. Uh, I, for lack of a better word, a TV function where it will you'll press your Netflix app or access it however you do, and it'll start playing a show it thinks you'll like. And you could skip ahead and it'll skip to the beginning of another show it thinks you'll like. And you can disable this, of course. But basically bringing to the forefront something that we've talked about, which is, and it was interesting to see how seriously Netflix takes this, which is the most, the most 1% privileged problem that we all face, but it's decision fatigue. Yeah. In that by having limitless options and limitless scrolling amidst all these feeling like increasingly limitless apps, we become paralyzed and we're unhappy and we don't actually watch anything. It, or maybe I should use I statements. That's a common occurrence in my household. I have. I would actually like to tell you what's going on with you because I think it's the same mm-hmm. thing that's going on with me. And we can use Netflix as a good example here. I think that there's so much stuff out there to watch. There are so many shows. There are so many docs. There are so many reality shows. There are so many limited series and sitcoms and all these other things. But they have been programmed algorithmically to within an inch of their life that in fact, it's not that there's an embarrassment of riches, but actually like those things are so specific that you don't actually want to watch them. Mm. And so when you look and you see, look at these 20 new shows and these hundreds of new shows, mm-hmm. but there's something about them, whether it's not, whether it's like you already know something about it and like, you're like, that's not for me. Or you just look at the tile, the sort of the, the kind of announcement card there. And you're just like, Nah, that doesn't look like for, it's for me. That you're actually like saying to yourself, there's nothing I want to watch. Not there's everything I want to watch and I just That's can't right. choose. Yeah. Yes, there's nothing is special. That's a great point. There was a, I, I saw this on Twitter the other day. Someone had called up these stock photos. If they'd searched on stock photo websites for like streaming and it's pictures of smiling, blank face, bland people with, you know, non-branded iPads open and they're looking at little squares of shows that obviously look like Netflix, but they're all titles are like Dr. Cool and <laughs> the wolves question mark or whatever. And they're all just like made up. And it's actually not that different from reality. I think this See, is a I really good See, I would watch a show called the wolves exclamation question mark. I know. No, it's a total yeah. mess. <laughs> they, they needed the Hollywood doctor in at the early script stage. Um, yeah. Own your content. Don't come in here half-assing it. Just be bold. And it reminds me of, I mean, I, I, this might be, well, I, I haven't seen it, but I know that there's a, a doc people were watching about Sasquatches. Sasquatch, yeah. I'm Sasquatches. watching yeah. Am I pronouncing it wrong? Sasquatch, it comes from the Duplass French. brothers, and it's, it's a, a three-episode true crime documentary. With like, uh, like weed farmers and It's yetis, about a murder right? in Mendocino County that either, uh, shout out to Kaya's stomping grounds. It, it is... Uh, <laughs> it's the Yeti stomping grounds. <laughs> well, the same thing. Yeah. Uh, it's a murder in uh, like on a weed farm in the 90s and the legend has it that the murder was like by Bigfoot but it's like, was it really just rival drug gangs or something? 
Well, the only takeaway I've heard from from people who've seen it were like, well, I watched it because it felt exactly like something I would like, but in the end, it wasn't enough Yetis and wasn't enough, wasn't enough weed farms and mm-hmm. wasn't enough true crime, but it was kind of the simulacrum of the thing that I like. And, and I have a similar experience on Netflix when I am doing the scroll that they're trying to uh, keep us from doing. And you're just and like, what other shows from France are there? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you, you you joke, but that is actually what, what what my bars look like. But one of them is basically like, you know, uh, since you watch street food Myanmar, would you like street <laughs> food Burkina Faso and yes. it, or, or whatever? And the answer is, okay, yes, I'm not made of stone. But at the same time, these shows are just, they're fine. You know, they're not uh, the Samin Nosrat show that, I, that mm-hmm. I'm going to get wrong. Salt, the, fat, acid, heat. Yes, which I love and I hope is coming back or, or, or Dave Chang's show, Ugly Delicious, or of course, you know, Bourdain, like point of view shows with a real sense of place and a sense of purpose and a sense of direction. They are the filler shows that are also kind of like that. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'd be curious it, once we begin to experience the Netflix's TV now uh, autoplay function, is it just going to fill up my screen with that kind of stuff? Because the truth is, no matter how Netflix wants to play it, and this isn't an indictment of Netflix's content library, which is vast, it's just the nature of art in general. Mm-hmm. There aren't that many great things. There just yeah. aren't, you know? Yeah, right. and, and and There's a lot maybe, of stuff that's okay. Yeah. And, if and a lot of that and, okay stuff can mean a lot to a lot of people in various ways. Mm-hmm. And I mean, obviously, like, your your definition of what's okay and what's great is different. But this gets to what we were talking about a couple of weeks ago. We were like, is it... Is it a CR and Andy problem that Netflix mm-hmm. doesn't have a prestige show? Or is it a Netflix problem? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, is it the kind of problem from the... Is it going back to the discourse of 2013 or 14 or 15 to say, where's your Emmy-nominated, much-talked-about cliffhangery drama that, like, it's kind of like I, the engine of a lot of, like, the last decade of TV? Or are you actually, like, lapping the field with the Circle Brazil and, yeah. you know, the Jamie well, Foxx sitcom and a ton of kids shows. I think we're going to see because obviously we lead with, uh, we don't we don't lie about who we are and what we like. And I think there's probably no question that we are overrating to a degree HBO Max and HBO Max's launch because they consistently are getting the HBO shows. And we generally like a lot of HBO shows and mm-hmm. they generally drive the culture that we cover. But, you know, if we ever get Casey Bloys or Jason Kalar or any of the people from Warner Media on the podcast, I'd be very curious. I don't know if they'll be honest about it, but I'm wondering to what degree the Nevers and Mayor of Easttown are driving their traffic uh, versus Big Bang Theory reruns and Friends, in Friends, you know, which is are, the, the challenge of these streaming operations is they're fighting numerous skirmishes on a lot of different fronts. Yeah. The ones that get coverage aren't necessarily the ones that are paying the bills. And so that's just baked into how we're covering this stuff. Absolutely. Well, we have a big show today, so should we get to Top Chef and then we'll do Malcolm Spellman? Yes. Okay. So uh, Top Chef, uh, you're listening to this on late Thursday night, Friday morning, so the Top Chef episode has just aired. I thought this was one of, I think, the most entertaining episodes Mm -hmm. of the season. Uh, It was kind of uh, a little gimmicky, I think, on both the quick fire and the elimination challenges. And at the same time, I've kind of started to appreciate Top Chef as a pressure cooker rather than a platform for great cooking to blossom. You know, I think Mm. it is a competition and I think it does have a lot of challenges, obviously baked into the, to the, the concept of the show, but you know, watching say someone like Kiki and, and her really like, you know, I think in a cool way is like saying like, 
I'm a really good chef, but cooking something in less than 20 minutes or cooking something with one hand tied behind my back or a blindfold on or only Mm -hmm. being able to use this or not being able to have aromatics or whatever is hard. That is, and it's not necessarily the same thing as here's this menu, here's how these courses are going to complement one another, plus the plating, plus the atmosphere of the restaurant, plus like the the ambience of the place. So I thought that this episode was like a really good competition episode, um, and I, I I wanted to see what you thought about that. I agree with that, and I think that it's always worth saying, even if we haven't covered it before. Like it's really hard to be good at one thing, let alone two or three things, and there are certain positions, I mean, it's not exactly a job, that require people to be good at multiple things that don't necessarily agree with each other. One of them is actually being a restaurateur, where you have to have been a good cook, mm-hmm. you know, in, on a technical level, but you also have to be a manager of people and general, and a teacher and, you know, hopefully increasingly a decent human being. It's worth noting that someone like, uh, like Kwame, who's just crushing it as a judge this season, though there wasn't a lot of screen time in this, this particular episode, he didn't do particularly well on the show, if I remember correctly. I mean, he did he did en- well enough for people to be like, this kid is hugely talented. But where he was in his career and where he was in his life, he wasn't ready to dominate on the show. I mean, he's, he's still very young, you know? Yeah. So I think your point is is well taken. Not everybody is cut out to be this magical unicorn of all the things. And, and you know, we were raving about Melissa, uh, as we always do last week, and, and someone correctly pointed out in a comment that, you know, she, in Top Chef Boston, she wasn't in the top three. I mean, Gregory and May and other contestants were lapping her at times because she wasn't in the right headspace or skill level or confidence level to compete. So all of that is all of that is happening within every episode. I think the thing that stood out to me, and it, in addition to it being a very entertaining show, is God, they've gotten really good at casting. And in terms of the shows, or in terms of the we're shows, five, or? yeah, we're five episodes in, and I love these guys. I like their vibe. I like their hang. I was enjoying this episode so much, and, and we will work from the, the beginning to the end, but I was enjoying the episode so much that all of a sudden it was judge's table and elimination. I was like, oh, one of these guys has to go? Mm-hmm. I like them all. I don't well, want anybody to go yet. And this is an early time to have found that. And to your point about the judges, all of them joking around in the cars and laughing at Padma, like it's just such a quality hang that especially has rewarded those of us who have watched 18 seasons of it. They're just, they're in a really good zone right now. In past, I think that what we saw this week was what we've seen in a couple of past, and I always think of Brooke when I think of this particular idea, is just like the wobble. Like when the favorites have kind of established themselves and then there's something, whether it's like they get too comfortable or maybe they lose a little bit of their imagination over the course of the first few weeks, they just get to a point. And I don't know if this will be like this, like the level of Melissa's salad or when Brooke actually, I think, had to go to Last Chance Kitchen and cook her way mm-hmm. back into the competition. But you saw Sarah and Shoda both have kind of like tough, tough episodes, I thought. And they had been kind of like, at least in among these parts, two of the favorites, I think. Is that a pretty typical, common, you know, thing to have happen to... It's, it's, it's rare to see a chef go wire to wire, right? Very rare. I think, again, I haven't watched these episodes really since they aired, but in my memory, Blaze was always pretty dominant. Paul in Texas was always pretty dominant. There were other seasons where I think, like I mentioned May and Gregory, I think they were pretty consistent mm-hmm. throughout the seasons. But yeah, people people struggle. But I, I think, as we said last week, it's worth noting the ways in which people struggle. Shoda struggled because he just kind of went nuts on something that was conceptually a pretty insane, if not bad idea. That wasn't the same kind of struggle as Gabriel making a dish that is uninspired, boring, and bland. Mm-hmm. If Shota just 
when we get showed a salad moment, then I'll be worried that his soul has been eliminated. Yeah, you the know? only thing, the only warning flag I would say for Shota was the fact that I think it was during the, the quick fire, and we can kind of get into the, the episode itself here, but it was during the Rose challenge that mm-hmm. I think he, he said, I wish they would just let us cook. Like, basically, yeah, like... Yeah, they threw that in there. That was an interesting addition. And I thought that was an interesting moment of frustration from a guy who's obviously, like... He obviously has a rep even on set because Chris was like, I chose this team because I want to cook near Shoda. Um, so he obviously has a lot of respect from his peers. To see him get a little bit frustrated after maybe a couple of weeks of, like, Campbell's Soup and, you know, Talenti Gelato, and now it's like... You got to cook with roses or you got to make 50 plates for drive-ins, even he, though you don't know what horror movies are like. People are, you're right about that though. People are definitely checking for him. And and I, I don't want to read too much into this, but if you go on like show his Instagram, Byron is just hanging out with him doing a pop-up dinner. Like oh, cool. I, clearly he is a charismatic figure to the other cooks there as well. All right. So let's get into any other big picture notes that you wanted to drop before we get into the quick fire. Nothing that won't come up as we go through it. I think. Okay. This one. Uh, so what's up with roses? Are they like, is that like cilantro? Is that like one of those things where it's just like a bunch of people just think it tastes I, like soap? I think rose water sucks. Yeah, yeah I'm sorry. I don't really Culture, have... That, that's, that, that's not fair. It's a very important ingredient to a lot of cultures cooking and can be used beautifully, I'm sure. But in my experience of eating it, which I think has been not ideal or when it's been added to something, it is very, 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 very strong. And okay. it is, because it is perfumey more than anything else, a heavy hand can make you think I mean, what Richard was like grandma's purse or so. Yeah, right. So not, um, not it's not like cilantro in that some people, some poor, poor. I'm so sorry for uh, the it's people. It's me. You're you boy. can't eat it. No, can't eat it at all. It tastes God. awful to me too. It's like when I taste cilantro, like the entire it tastes like soap, and then the entire like dish is shot for me. Man, yeah, I, I feel terrible for you. I know, and it's like every YouTube video in the world is just like just gonna chop up a bunch of roughly chopped cilantro and just hit it with that, like all these like cool dressings. It's like the one of the staples of Mexican food, obviously. You know, like it's just it's a tough look for your kid. But because it because in this case, rose water is just has to be used judiciously and well, I thought mm-hmm. it was pretty cool. And I think it, it's worth noting there's a there's a difference between Avishar being like kind of like me, like I uh, clearly just doesn't enjoy it and banning it from his Banned kitchen. It. Yeah, right. But figuring out a way to use it. And Maria making the insane choice of choosing an ingredient that she medically cannot ingest. She is allergic to shrimp. And yet with an entire packed pantry, I guess there weren't scallops and buttermilk. So sorry for people who are going to poach scallops and buttermilk, chose that ingredient. I mean, yeah. there's just different levels of of what you can't, what you should and shouldn't do. And so as you alluded to, Maria, it's Maria's getting the edit that Kiki got like last week, which is like, this is why I'm like maybe on my way out. So Maria, who I think has been making good food, but it seems like... Um, it hadn't distinguished herself yet. And she was trying to like find like her footing basically in the competition. And I think a couple of times, like I think the judges had mentioned portion size with like Maria, like mm-hmm. basically getting like a bowl from her at the end of a meal or mm-hmm. wow, that's a huge dessert. Like, you know, and her just being like, that's like, I don't know how to cook for two people. Like that's it. She had kind of like a rough episode where she obviously calls her family and seems like she's starting to doubt herself. And that can go one of two ways. You either that's the signal that you're on your way out or that's the the path to redemption is like you figure out who you are and how to cook. Like, and we've seen Chris kind of correct course and now become, I think up in the top two or three people right now. And, uh, Maria was having a similarly difficult time. I think that she, she, she was, she was having a rough go of it, but obviously wasn't the person to go home this week. 
it was an extremely heavy edit, one of the heaviest that we've ever seen, but also one that I thought was pretty interesting. Um, my first reaction to what she was doing, I mean, they, again, this is how it plays out in the edit, but we go from the previous episode where the, what, what the chefs in at Judge's Table are told, Nelson specifically, is serve us your food, uh-huh. right? Like, don't try to impress us. Don't try to change who you are. You're going to get confused, and all we taste is the confusion. Cut to Maria being like, I think I'm cooking too much Mexican food. I'm cooking too much of my own food. I shouldn't do that. And then she makes these bizarre decisions like choosing an ingredient she's allergic to to serve as a quick fire challenge. Generally, I think the advice that people who watch a lot of seasons figure out is if they're not responding to your food, it's not because it's not what they want. It's because they're not getting enough of you in it. You got to turn it up and make it stand out in terms of what you want to bring to the plate. It's just you're being you're you're muting yourself too much potentially. It's and and it's though it's apparently easy to get the opposite uh, take have the opposite takeaway. That said, I thought that Maria's essentially her narration of the episode was really yeah. illuminating because it never really occurred to me that if you are in the mushy middle for five straight weeks. It means you have never been given a critique. You've never stood in front of the judges. And no wonder she's losing her mind because even those who have gotten negative critiques at the judging panel have been told things like Nelson was. Like, Nelson, we like who you are and how you cook. Give us that. Mm-hmm. There's always some uh, always some sugar with the spice that they get at that table, even if you're on the bottom. And that must totally, I get it. I, I thought that was a very compelling uh piece to include in the edit and the narration of the episode for us to better understand that. So Chris wins the quick fire. I don't really have a ton to say about it just because like I can't even, I don't really even like, have like an opinion on Rose as like an ingredient. So it's not like I was like, oh, this one was dope and this one seemed ridiculous. I, I guess well, it's worth noting that Sarah made another yogurt and didn't seem particularly like into her salad and nor were the judges. I, I thought that there was just, when you looked at, there was a plating thing. I thought Avishar at least they allowed him to make the joke about his late 90s spa cuisine That's right. plating. I mean, that was a tired-ass looking plate of food. And it was really it was really jarring for someone who wants to compete when you looked at what like Shoda, Gabriel, and Gabe were throwing up there and Chris, like or or or, or Byron, beautiful plates of food, like composed. Yeah. Can you plate, bro? No. No. No, I just, I just, my whole thing is just like make everything look like Thanksgiving dinner, right? Like just like little circles of food on the plate. You do little circles at Thanksgiving dinner? Yeah. What do you do at Thanksgiving dinner? Oh, a, a Thanksgiving dinner plate looks like the like a map of the Balkans in the mid nineties. No, but you, know you what I mean? sta- it's just no, like- but you start, you start. Everybody is like, it's like, it's like rollerball. Like you start everybody in position, and then you bring them all together in the middle. Oh, everybody's on. So it's like a trivial pursuit piece. Yeah. There's like wedges. Yeah, I basically go the, like protein, you know, starch, right. veggie, whatever, whatever, whatever. But then it comes together to 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 make the the monster mash. Do you, in your the monster mash is beautiful. Like so, is is the consistency of your successfully executed Thanksgiving plate? Is it like a true Neapolitan pizza in that it is essentially liquid in the center, but a little <laughs> crispier on the edges? No, is I never that, really thought about it like that. I usually. It's really more of like like getting the flavors of like sweet, cheesy, savory, salty all together, you know, and right. then the different textures. Cheesy, yeah. Like I'm getting mac and cheese going with, okay. with Thanksgiving right. dinner. Okay. Am I alone in this world? What are you talking? You about? You are not alone. You are not alone. And in fact, my older daughter recently found out that in some households, mac and cheese is a staple of the Thanksgiving plate, and she wants to go to those houses now. She's okay. actively campaigning to make this something that we do as well. Um, no, I, my plating, 
I would say that my plating is so seat of the pants and sorry that a, a couple of weeks ago when I did make my daughter, I made them like a little rice bowl for lunch and I had a minute. And so like I, I, I put a little furikake seasoning on the rice, <laughs> yeah. like a little green, you know, a little pop of color, you know, and I, I fanned out some seaweed and, and I was so proud of it. I took a picture for myself. Did they notice? No. But who do we really cook for? Them. But it felt good. Anyway, yeah, I, I, I just thought that was a good challenge because it seemed challenging in a mm-hmm. way that was understandable, not challenging in a way of like, you just have to cook 50 hot dogs in the rain. Like that's a different level of challenge. Yeah, you know you what? Said, I actually thought, I thought Gabriel did a good job being like, I am not particularly close with my mother, but I will cook a good meal here. Like I thought like that was an interesting little like twist on that, that whole thing. Mm-hmm. Let's get to the elimination challenge because I thought it was absolutely like thrilling. Like I, I love uh, an industrial service. Like I think it really challenges the chefs in a really cool way. I wonder whether any of the contestants has ever seen a movie. <laughs> that is a definite <laughs> question I have coming out of it. Not, I don't think there was a single reference to a film. Now I don't know whether or not like there's That's some correct. weird copyright thing where it's like, if Maria's like, I love a few good men, you know, or I like, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm a particular fan of the yep. Matrix. Like, they have to pay the Matrix for Warner Brothers. On the flip side, would they have been like, oh, I have to, I guess I have to say my favorite film of all time is Trolls World Tour, now streaming on I Peacock. I don't know, but it just definitely did not seem like a bunch of film buffs. So I, I, I very <laughs> much agree with this. I very much agree with this. Um, <laughs> sometimes, though, I do wonder. You tell me, listeners tell me, although you guys are kind of a self-selecting group, we think about this stuff a lot and we care about this stuff a lot. And, and often movies. We, well, in this case, movies are entertainment or culture, yeah. right? And we, yeah. and we are, we, it is our job to have opinions about these things. But sometimes when I talk to people, sometimes young people, so maybe they haven't really found their taste yet. I'm like, well, what do you like to watch? Like you, you, you'd like to be a writer or whatever. And, and, and they're like, well, I guess I'd say that I like, I like comedy because I like to laugh, but comedy with some drama in it because it's serious, but also I guess I like dramas with comedy in it. So they like Atlanta. Exactly. Well, I'm like, I like everything like that too. <laughs> but maybe the difference between them expressing it at age 18 or whatever and and us talking for 90 minutes about Atlanta is the difference between um, the movie popcorn you get at the Cineplex at the mall and the popcorn that Dawn made. Still I popcorn. Dawn at least acknowledged like one does eat popcorn at the movies. Do you know what I mean? Like that was like a huge get for her. It was a huge get, but oh, you mean like that she had been to a movie theater before? Yeah, she's like practically like, you know, Pauline Kale compared to like <laughs> the way some people were just like, horror movies are like when my dog might die. That's uh-huh. not like what a horror movie is like, you know what I mean? And, and Gabriel being like action movies, like the action of dipping a cauliflower tot in one yeah, of yeah. two creamy sauces. I was like, because what bro, just make just a con- popper. Yeah, like conceptually, a, choosing a vegetable that isn't naturally used in this way because you're concerned about weight issues. That doesn't track with like saying like, I'm concerned about my intellectual development, but I'm going to go to an action movie. You know what yeah. I mean? Like go to the act. If you're going to go to the action movie, you're going to see the rock Tokyo drift and like, right. you have to embrace it. Right. <laughs> yes. Is that what the rock does in those movies? I've never seen them. No, I also don't know what Tokyo drifting is, but I've always loved the title. Okay. It's, it's basically when you're going around a curb and you pull the thing. And you yank up the emergency brake, yeah, so that your yeah. car like slides. Bro, yeah, I know that. 
I don't even think you can really drift with new cars because they've got all those fancy like automatic parking brake things. You know what I mean? It also wouldn't look cool if I was, I mean, it would never look cool if I was doing it, but I was just like, and now going quickly, I'll press the button with a P on it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think, I don't think it would work. Hold on, I'm in in eco mode. (laughs) It's like everyone. It's going to hit this leaf button and now I'm going to. Hold on, let me hit the home screen. I want to adjust my driving experience. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't work in California, guys. You, you'll never have you'll never have a Mendocino drift. Um although I think you can buy it at the dispensary. I think it's, <laughs> it's quite potent. Um the point being, they've never you're right, they've never seen movies, but they've also don't seem to understand the purpose or mindset of seeing a particular type of movie. Yes. And then you just end up with this is also talking about it's very hard to be good at a lot of things. Like these chefs shouldn't be doing open mic nights. They shouldn't be emceeing their own restaurants. You know, one might have pointed, someone might have pointed out that calling a dish that you'd like people to judge well, a rubber chicken dish is kind of setting yourself up for failure. Yeah. So you're referring to Jamie who eventually went, got voted out. Uh, I wanted to ask you about that. So, you know, we've commented before on the chumminess of the group, Mm -hmm. generally speaking, and the changing sort of nature of Top Chef from really, really aggressively competitive in the early seasons to increasingly more communal, supportive, yada, yada. We did get the people don't really dig Gabriel's vibe note early in the episode Mm -hmm. and in the elimination challenge the way it's cut at least is that gabriel is the one suggesting to jamie that she under fry these chickens right the the chicken wings and jamie ultimately is like that's my call because it's my dish like if i didn't Mm -hmm. want to i and and you know a couple of people like sarah had said like gabriel thinks he's the boss but i'm gonna make the milkshake the way i want to make it are you surprised that there wasn't any throwing under the bus going on. Not even throwing under the bus. That it, Like, Jamie might say, look, like, Gabriel kind of appointed himself executive chef of this entire experience, and he told me to do this. I think it's a great question. I think that the general demeanor of the majority of the chefs, non-Gabriel division, just aren't built that way, and mm-hmm. they're not going to they're not gonna behave that way. I also think that while we got a little bit of it, there was probably a lot more in the room that got edited out of making it clear to the contestants that Gabriel, Gabriel's dish sucked and Jamie's dish sucked, but Jamie's dish also violated one of the bedrock rules. Yeah. One of the first things, one of the things that Padma said at the beginning was just don't make it messy. And she made something that was messy and then not worth the effort or the mess. And I think mm-hmm. ultimately it was that more than it was that the chicken didn't have the best check texture. So in my opinion, the last time I went and I think the last time I came over to your house, mm-hmm. My wife and I grabbed burgers beforehand and delicious burgers. I love I love getting the backstory. And didn't know that they were like that like perfect size that they like did not explode out of the wrapper. You know how like sometimes with In N Out or like Carl's or whatever, like you're just like, this can't eat a human hand can barely hold this. Mm -hmm. I think personally the perfect drive-in food is a burger that is like kind of a smash burger that stays in its wrapper that way. Mm -hmm. To me, I was sort of surprised no one did that. Like I think you could have gotten away with burgers for horror by being like horror movies are set at summer camps. People eat burgers at summer camps like barbecue. I think you could you could have done something with burgers in action because of fire explosions, something like you could have figured out some like just as if you if, especially if you're going to be like cauliflower tots are action movies then or a popcorn is drama. 
you could have done something. In Joe su- Biden's America, cauliflower tots are action movies. Look, that's man. what this movie's saying. A uh, couple questions to this point. I think this is, I, I like what you're doing here. One, have you ever been to a drive-in movie? I have. I have not. Okay. My entire life. It seems fun. <laughs> it's cool. I feel yeah. a little, a little cool. sad now. Yeah. Um, but two, I would say in the same way that like we're kind of like, oh, you can't drift race with your cars these days. Right. I don't find that cars are really like built the way they were maybe in the 70s of like, we're, we're really like spending a shit ton of time in this car. You know what I mean? Like cars used to be like the main place that you would like hang out i think like you you would drive the strip you'd go to the drive through you'd go to the whatever drive in no you're not we're, we're dude, like so american graffiti american graffiti days of confused did you ever and like were those your your lives no but did, did you, you ever like those? drive your car and yeah. like go to like a like a spot like in the park or whatever like open the trunk and like make like out of, make out hill i don't know kai did you ever about? did you have a car culture growing up or were you like was were you, were you just well, I mean, yeah, because I grew up in a small town where Among there was the no, Sasquatches, yes. There was no movie theaters or <laughs> malls or anything. And so we would just drive around in our cars. Yeah. And Sorry, Andy, your- we're not all hailing taxi cabs and going to the Whitney. You have to keep I didn't grow up in New York. I had a septa culture. No, but like with, with Kaya, you have to also remember, Chris, that she had to keep the engine idling at all times in case of Yeti attack or <laughs> vengeful marijuana farmer, you know, conflicts spilling out <laughs> onto right. the streets. I, I, I think that what you're saying, correct me if I'm wrong, is that cars have gotten more, like, there, there's certainly more creature comforts within the car. Yes. But the older cars had bench seats where you could That's snuggle up with someone. That's a shorter way of saying what I'm saying. Or yeah. <laughs> hang out more. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, my car, my, my, my car, if my wife is sitting next to me, there's like, Oh, a gigantic like armrest divider. It's like we're sitting we're sitting on a, a an airplane seat or something. Well, there's not that much divider on that, but basically, it is not doesn't feel like a communal experience. Yeah, you know? right, right. So that that's probably part of it. I, to your point about the drippings, couldn't agree with you more. Hate a sloppy berg. But and as Padma said, my buttons are getting sticky here. <laughs> I think she was talking about her BMW sports car, not yeah. on her tunic. But no, but like still, she was saying, like I buttons. had this, I had this, this one rib, and now I like everything's sticky. I, I am a little bit sympathetic because hard to think about action and food without something that like explodes or drips or something or like oh, there's a hidden egg inside this or juicy Lucy burger and the cheese comes out the middle and it's active. Yeah. So you were denied that, and generally they just seem to have a. I mean, this is always the case with these sort of dramatic challenges. Uh, where people ultimately want to cook what they want to cook. And I think Gabriel, sorry, Gabe, Austin, Texas, Gabe, like probably at one of his restaurants, he served a churro with chicken liver pate in it before. Mm -hmm. And he was like, well, I'm just going to do that because he knows how to do it. And it was not a great idea. Last thing about this episode, very interested in, uh, first of all, shouts to Padma. She seemed to be enjoying herself shooting all these. So much fun. Yeah. Everybody loves Padma. We love, it's great. (laughs) Do you think that anyone was unhappy with their car buddy partner? Like, was anybody, like, did they draw straws in the BMW lot? And was anybody like, how many hours am I going to be in this car with this person in the rain? Gail was with Blaze, right? (laughs) I think Blaze is is like really, really good on TV. I wonder whether or not if you were like in a car with him for four hours or whatever they Mm -hmm. were doing in the rain, you know, like, would that be a tough hang? I don't know. There was also, I, I, I also really really need to know what's up with Tom. 
because Tom, Tom, Tom is amazing. It looks season. like he's falling apart. Like in a cool, like I understand why, like he is trying to literally save the restaurant industry at this time. But that guy was like more s'mores. And then like, and then like if somebody was like, Oh, we like the ceviche. He was like, what? That sucked. He, <laughs> like he was so spicy as the episode <laughs> went on. I got, and he was so DOA when he arrived. Like there's the first Padma one with the pie, which by the way, that was the best one yeah. because no one expected that to happen to Padma. He had no reaction. Didn't notice at all. And maybe he was preparing like, you know, a, a hit on MSNBC or something for later that evening. Right. He was like or begging Joe was, Manchin. To, <laughs> to just like, please make it rain. Or, and I'm not suggesting anything untoward, maybe he was waiting for a hit of Mendocino Drift because by the time <laughs> Avishar S'mores showed up, he was a very different guy. He, um, he bodied Dawn's popcorn. I mean, I yeah. thought he brought the right energy to it, but like he just seemed to be but, like, what I like is popcorn and s'mores. But, but also, <laughs> like a seven year old like, child. When he, when he was noticing everyone else making bad decisions, did you notice that when he just yelled out of the window of his car, King, what do you think of this? <laughs> to Melissa? It's getting, it's getting good. I, I, I'm, I am interested in the judges essentially being, because the contestants are always kind of bubbled off from the world, yeah, right. but the judges are as well, and they're starting to crack a little bit, and I'm here for it. Okay, so Jamie gets uh, eliminated. Um, seemed like a really fun person. I, I wonder, we'll have to see what she does in Last Chance Kitchen, which Andy and I have not gotten a chance to see yet. Any thoughts as we leave? Uh, on, is, do your favorites change at all? Do your top three change at all? It seems like Chris is kind of edged into that top three with Sarah and Shoda. Yeah, but also, I, to me, the, the top two, the top three is is uh, in my book is Sarah, Shoda, and Gabe from Texas. I think everybody else, what's been fun is over the last two weeks, we've started to see what the judges were talking about, where um, uh, like Byron can just freaking execute or Dawn can have an idea that she elevates. Like everyone is capable of it. It's a question of who's going to put it all together at the On right any given, time. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, we can wrap it up there. Should we get into our interview with Malcolm? Yeah, I just want to say this was, as Chris said at the beginning, this was very cool to talk to Malcolm, who seems like a great guy and has had a really varied and interesting career up to this moment. And, you know, I, I said to Chris always, it's always really compelling to hear the creative point of view of a creator, even if you didn't ultimately, even if you had wavering feelings on the execution, because it you can, it helps you lock into what he or she or they were going for and understand the work bigger, you know, as a better as a whole. He was also a really good sport because we tried to ask around the margins of things and he was very upfront about the things he could and couldn't answer. But generally, like the, it, this, is, this is an interesting stress test for everybody because individual creators of Marvel Cinematic Universe properties generally haven't been press avails, mm -hmm. you know, but now that we're in the TV economy and, you know, there's more content, more outlets, and just more of an expectation of access they're going to have to loosen up a little bit. And they have. And that was very cool of everybody involved. So I was excited to have this conversation. Yeah, so let's get into our conversation with Malcolm Spellman. Andy and I will be back on Monday to talk about Mayor of Easttown and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, we are produced by Kaya. As usual, we'll talk to you on Monday. This episode is brought to you by Hulu. Hey there. You know that Hulu has movies, right? Well, if you didn't, we're here to tell you Hulu has movies. Hulu has acclaimed movies like All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Meskel and Andrew Scott, Suncoast, starring Woody Harrelson and Laura Linney, and Cat Person with Amelia Jones and Nicholas Braun. So head over to Hulu if you like movies, because you guessed it, Hulu has movies. Oh, hold up. Smell test. Go ahead. Sniff those pits. Now, your bits. Feet. 
toes. Come on. Could be fresher, right? It's all good. Old Spice Total Body Deodorant Spray is gentle enough to use all over your body, giving you 24-7 lasting freshness with daily use, from pits to toes and down below. So every smell test gets a... (sighs) Shop for Old Spice Total Body Deodorant. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. This episode is brought to you by the Disney Bundle. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new exciting movies and series, all for one low price. On Disney Plus, join the ranks of Captain Marvel, Captain Monica Rambeau, and Ms. Marvel as they team up to save the universe in Marvel Studios' The Marvels and embark on an adventure into the futuristic world of Iwaju. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone, in the award-winning film Poor Things. And school is back in session for the beloved teachers of Abbott Elementary. The Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. They're better together. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Andy and I are so happy to be joined by the creator of Falcon and Winter Soldier, Malcolm Spellman. Malcolm, thanks for joining The Watch, man. Thank you so much for having me, guys. I kind of wanted to start with with your Marvel origin story, if we can start with an unoriginal question, which is essentially, like, how did you come to join this project? How did you create this project? And what were some of the... um, At what point, like, where along the line were they creatively when you joined? Were they like, we want to do a Bucky and Sam show, what do you want to do with it? Or were they like, hey, here's the playground. Tell us what you want to play on. It, it's, it is. So, you know, the the first phase of this is boring. It's, you know, it's a gig. There are writers they will hear from and then you compete to get the gig. And, and, and I won the day, if for no other reason, that I think Nate and me really vibed out from the moment we met and was on the same page on what, you know, the real heart of this series would be with Sam and Bucky. And they do provide you a more, it's, it's pretty amazing. Like it's a trip. Like it took me getting used to having creative partners, the way Marvel are creative partners and people think they come in and they tell you what to do. And it's not that, that at the same time, they're going to be involved with what you're doing. And if you embrace that shit, which it took me a minute to do, it just becomes like a creative family. So when I showed up, they had a menu, they had like three different ranges of types of stories and a menu of characters who they were interested in exploring. And you can mix and scratch all that shit, all you want to get the ball rolling. And then of course, once the ball gets rolling, you go in a direction that none of y'all ever planned on. But does the ball have to roll in a particular direction? Like in addition to the menu, does it say your your meal tonight will end with Sam Wilson becoming Captain America? Or was that something that you can negotiate with the Marvel sommelier who's by your table. And I, I'll abandon, I'll abandon that metaphor now. Um, you can, you can negotiate whatever you want. I mean, something like that. I don't know. I don't think I would have got the job. If I wasn't trying to make Sam cap, 
You know what I'm saying? What was that? What was I here to do? You know what I'm saying? Say, fuck it. <laughs> you know, maybe you shouldn't be capping. You won't be. Nah, it, it was everything is up for debate, but that was never debated. Like, I think the idea of a black man becoming Captain America was just so right and relevant for these times. You know what I'm saying? And hopefully positive for people. It never even occurred to me that someone might not want to do that. You know what I'm saying? As part of the, your sort of onboarding process, was the Isaiah Bradley character and uh, Bob Morales and Kyle Baker's comic, The Truth, on in the room, on the board? Or was that something you came in already knowing about as potentially something exciting to play with? My boy, Dalen, brought, like, I knew, I'd read The Truth books ages ago. Um, mm-hmm. And we needed, like, I knew Isaiah could be, we need, we needed Sam's doubt to be personified. I think if this show did anything well, it is that the conversations we're having regarding, you know, you know, a global, a global feeling of powerlessness, uh, 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 race, um, loss of, of status and privilege, you know, all these things, right. Is embodied in these characters. And I feel like that's what's making it resonate with people is no one's on a pulpit these characters are the living embodiment of the shit we all talk about when we're in our living room. Isaiah is the living embodiment of Sam's doubt. And so I know for me, he was the, he was arguably the most important character in the series to me. Like, I think in a weird way, the casting of Carly was some of the most important casting in that you have to buy her when a antagonist and a hero in a room just talking if those two actors aren't the right age disparity, right chemistry between them, it seems absurd, but, but they vibed out. So for me, Isaiah was arguably the most important character because he's the living embodiment of Sam's doubt. And Sam has to become Captain America, despite the fact that everything Isaiah is saying is true. So Malcolm, when you're, when you're in the room with the creative executives they work with, Nate, and I, I believe you worked with two people specifically on, on, on this show. Nate and Zoe. Freaking frack. <laughs> so how does that experience differ from a, you know, a more traditional writing experience on a TV show in terms of, um, in, both in terms of like what you're bouncing, who you're bouncing ideas off of, but what they're throwing back at you? I'd never experienced nothing like it. And at first, it took me a second to get comfortable with it. They are super honest about the way they work, but depending on your disposition, you're going to acclimate at a different rate. You know, I think I acclimated pretty quickly, but it was, I I bet you Nate wouldn't even agree. They, I tell motherfuckers, I tell people that I'm having an anxiety attack and they don't believe me. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) So it's really hard to explain that, these people, Nate and Zoe, all they've been doing is working with writers and directors. And Marvel, they work on one project at a time. So they start from outline, through script, through production, through post on that one project. So as creative producers, they are trained in a way that I don't think any other studio is doing it. Boom. That's number one. They also are paying your bills. So that's a unique thing. So you take the fact that they are uniquely chained, that they are paying your bills, and the fact that they're sitting in that room with you, all of these are things I'm not used to. You know what I'm saying? And once I embraced it and just, you know, 
and which, which I think I did pretty quickly, you know what I'm saying? It becomes amazing because beyond their aptitude and storytelling, they just have access to the Marvel encyclopedia in a way no one else does. You know what I'm saying? And they, and they can just drop mythology on you. Like instead of you spinning your wheels and sending someone off to research, they're machines when it comes to that. So it was because of my disposition, initially awkward, and then very quickly something I look forward to hopefully one day being able to do again soon, you know? I, I know you can speak to this, but one of the, the the beauties of television production is you as the writer can have an idea on the page and the director comes in and they have a vision in their head. And what ends up being the show is kind of a combination of the two, hopefully the best case scenario. And I was yep. wondering if you could speak to that type of relationship with the Marvel executives and Marvel itself, even if, the, you know, specifically if there are instances you can speak about where you had a vision for, let's say, Sam or for Isaiah that maybe wasn't what they initially thought and then you kind of blurred into an agreement or vice versa, where they came to you with something. That's what I mean. For, I don't know how uh, savvy your, you guys as fans are, but the first thing they need to understand, even these people who are call themselves auteur showrunners, right? If they were being honest, what happens in a writer's room is an amazing thing. Mm -hmm. People are, it's just this rapid fire creative conversation where if people can lock into a hive mind, even when they're disagreeing with you, they're doing it in a way that moves story forward or deepens a given moment or whatever, right? And I, the only thing I can compare it to is old school jazz, where it's being improvised, yet all with a collective goal that creates something that feels organized and orchestrated, even though it's not. Nate and Zoe fall right into that the way writers do, because they've been so there. And yeah, every, I, I mean, it's hard for me to shit that I was determined to do. And because I was clear on that from the beginning, we never had to disagree on it. But most of what you see is that process is like, I was answering a thing earlier, man, with someone saying, what was your favorite thing to write? And I was like, my favorite thing that I wrote was in someone else's episode. So I'm not going to speak on it. Huh. And at the same time, anything you love from my episode likely had someone else's fingerprints on it. I love to hear you say that. And it's funny, I have written in my notes as part of a different question that the auteur theory is is a myth in TV. Everything <laughs> is elastic. Everything's changing. Everything is collaborative to the point where you can't always tell which way is up or where it came from. That said, it does feel like this was a unique experience in additional ways because, you know, people who make shows know that like the, the time elapsed between picture lock and something airing can often be uncomfortably small. But you guys were delayed by the pandemic. You had to rework, reshoot, regroup, and then also find a new place in the order of the larger Marvel machine. How disruptive was that to your creative vision? And what was the experience like? I think we handled it well. Um, I, I feel like maybe I'm not supposed to get into that. And I don't know why, because it wasn't, I mean, it was a big deal in that, you know, many countries fucked up how they managed the global situation. But as far as us, I think we, our creative group, handled it uh, really, really well. Um, when you were coming into the to the project, were there elements of specifically Bucky and Sam, but even Zemo, where you were like, you know, I've watched these movies, I've seen these characters, I'm familiar with these characters from their comics history, maybe. Was there something you were like, I want to bring this part 
a, a new element to one of these characters that we haven't really seen yet. Because I thought for, for especially for Zemo that there that like you guys wrote into him in a way that I was like, this is actually like a much more lively and interesting character, which isn't disparage the way he was before. But you kind of you, you seem like you had a lot of fun working with him, and I was wondering if coming into it. You had some kind of like, I want to tweak this 10% or I want to tweak that 15%. It, it is. So a ton of the conversation is what have these people been doing in between all these giant movies and yeah. how do they feel? And like when they're showing up, what kind of baggage do they have? Right. And I'm sure, by the way, just to backstep a minute, the people who consider themselves auteur showrunners about to talk shit about me. <laughs> Matt Weiner's like, about I, to be like, what? <laughs> it's all good to me. Like, I, I, you know, uh, I know who my peers are and I know what the process looks like. And so, you know, I don't want to make it sound like I just showed up and people fed me stuff. I have opinions, but I, I agree with uh, Andy that auteur anything is bullshit in something that's this creatively collaborative. For Zemo and these other characters, yeah, I mean, it's hard to describe. Like, you get into the writer's room and you just talk about what would obviously have happened mm -hmm. and what the emotional fallout or charge or what the psychology would be from that. And it goes for Sharon also, right? Like, and it was very, very exciting because I do feel like with Zemo in particular and with Sharon, the audience hadn't made assumptions based on what happened. But once we came in, unpacked all of it and imbued the character with it to the audience, it's like, oh, yeah, of course he would be this person. Right. Um, for much of the audience, even though some of them are pissed off, of course, Sharon felt betrayed by everybody left hang out to dry. You know what I'm saying? And I do want to say, man, you know, we had one line of description where we talked about uh to Zemo, Bucky, all these characters, but particularly Bucky, were like broken toys. Mm -hmm. And what Daniel Brule did with that was beyond anything we could have ever expected. He seemed like he was having a good time. Oh, man, he <laughs> I, I had to email him. I'm like, just the way he's playing with these scenes, you know what I'm saying? It's just it is it's pretty amazing. Going back a moment, I remember as a comic fan uh, in 2003 when The Truth came out, and I'll just shout it out again. People should check out this book. It was uh, pretty revolutionary at the time. And I remember feeling excited both as a comic book fan and as just a person in the world that there was another place to go with these stories, that there were things that were left on the tree that could still be revisited and made relevant in a different way. And I was curious about in your experience making this show, I mean, watching it at times, it felt like a real life stress test for what the MCU as a fictional project could withstand. Yep. You can bring in these ideas of social justice or inequality or even much deeper ideas, which I think, you know, were baked into the root of the Flag Smasher story. What was that experience like doing that in real time and trying to make this a more expansive and inclusive world? I think, number one, like, obviously, the MCU is embracing the history of the books as far as being topical and relevant, right? And I think they're way ahead of everybody else. The big brands, I just think they're doing it in a meaningful way. You know what I'm saying? I think Black Panther was groundbreaking, you know, in a very loud way. I think people are responding to this in a way that regular human beings are feeling heard and serviced by these hero stories. Mm -hmm. I knew what felt honest and real to me, I thought it was going to be challenging. You know what I'm saying? And I got to admit, with Marvel, man, 
as long as you're not standing on a pulpit and showing up with an agenda, if big social themes are occurring naturally, especially as embodied by characters, they was with it. And I was surprised. I, I got to admit, like, because, you know, it, it is we set out to do something that felt very relevant and of the times. And I think people people think that it happened accidentally and it didn't. You know what I'm saying? It was a room. I think one of the good things about letting, you know, people of color, specifically if you're going to talk about American stories, uh, African-Americans have a voice in these rooms is you're going to be tied, you're going to be more relevant because we are so directly attached to a struggle that is a sort of a composite of a greater human struggle, that relevance is going to be there. You know what I'm saying? Well, there's a really powerful moment in the show early on when, you know, when Sam is stopped by the police and you realize that for throughout a lot of comic book history, black superheroes are written as superheroes first and then people of color second. And there are these moments that you put into this storyline, which I think were really important and really bracing, potentially even for the genre going forward, where it's clear that Sam is a black man in America first, and then he gets to that put is on. One, we literally use those words, Sam is black first. And you that's the best embodiment of at the bank, he was black first and being Falcon didn't matter. When he got encountered with those police, it's the same as like an athlete or a judge or a politician. You are black first, you know what I'm saying? And that isn't up to him and that isn't up to the MCU. That is the reality of storytelling and life. And uh, Chris, I'm sorry, I keep jumping on you, but I, I'm wondering also then, Malcolm, what the conversations with Anthony Mackie were like. Yeah, because I was gonna actually gonna ask that. In addition to Sam having to take on this mantle, it's a big deal as an actor to you know buy in to a character's journey to the point where he's willing to become this, you know, the, the face of America. I mean, we, I, I, it was, this is the best experience. Not that I haven't had other amazing experiences working with actors, but the time I spent with Anthony, especially like on that episode six speech, mm -hmm. was I just felt like he was so engaged and was so open that it allowed me to be totally open. So the exchange that we had was seamless. And I think, you know, one of the things we had to start off doing, I think this was maybe even Nate's idea, is Anthony and Sebastian and all these people have to write backstories and histories and psychologies for these characters. Mm -hmm. Even if you ain't seeing it on the screen, for them to be as good as they are, they've done a ton of work, right? Once we started giving Sam a new backstory, we needed that to feel, we needed to take Sam and open him up and make him like, one of the things I knew coming in was we Sam's voice should be decidedly Black, right? And point of view should be decidedly Black. Simply not because of no political reasons, Thor is decidedly Asgardian. T'Challa is decidedly African royalty. Spider-Man is decidedly a high school student from Brooklyn, right? right? So you couldn't hide from that with him. And so one of the things that uh, I, I can't take, I think it was Nate. If Nate says it was me, that'd be great. <laughs> one of the ways to make that jibe with Anthony, who had already done a ton of work on Sam, was to make Sam's backstory rooted in shit that's really real life for Anthony. It's Louisiana and stuff like that, right? And, yeah. And and that allowed him any breaks in what he'd written were done from a place that already had a truth to him so that it didn't disrupt his ability to channel the character. And you know what I'm saying? Um so that was a real that was an amazing experience working with him. And I think Anthony really felt 
I felt a tremendous amount of pressure taking this on, which is why I wanted to take it on. And I think Anthony did too. I can't speak for him, but he was thoughtful as, as hell. So I believe he was very, very aware of this needing to be done right for him as an as as a character actor and as being the face of what's going to be a new global icon. Yeah, you I know, it's believe, like I can't believe Marvel didn't mute us just then to say that Spider-Man's from Queens. Guys, we're getting away with we're getting away with murder here. But go on, Chris. <laughs> no, I was just going to say it's like once you see the end of this series, it's like it makes so much more sense for this to be the journey of this character to get this shield rather than if it had happened at the end of Endgame. If they'd have just been like, here you go, man. Like, you you earned it. You've been in these other movies with me and you, you've you been rolling shotgun with me and now now you're, you're Captain America. And I actually have this be... I imagine that was really re- rewarding for Anthony. I wanted to ask you a little bit of a process nerd question because I saw you... Uh, I saw an interview you did uh, or right, right when the series debuted where you were talking about the difference between movie writing and TV writing and the difference between horizontal and vertical storytelling. And I was really fascinated by this. And I was wondering if you could kind of get into that a little bit for our listeners, because I imagine that obviously these are characters who move pretty fluidly from the world of TV to movies and their journeys have to be kind of adjusted for that. What's the difference between vertical and horizontal storytelling and how did that work itself out on this show? I I never really had to, I started off writing movies, right? And I moved into TV like six, seven years ago, whatever, with Empire, right? And I was aware that horizontal storytelling, which is these, this terminology we sort of came up in the room, right? Is very, very different from a movie. So a movie, which we called, Kevin was like this, I want you to go as deep. Serialized storytelling allows you to go deep because you're long-balling emotions and payoff in a way that you can only do over an extended period of time, right? He's like, I want y'all to go deep like that, but these episodes got to feel like movies. And when he said feels like movies, he isn't just talking about big action and bigness. He's talking about the way movies have an urgency to them. That's what we mean by vertical storytelling. If you look at most films, they are compressed time, right? Meaning they're happening in a very short amount of time and there's an inevitable momentum to them, right? They tend to not take breaths. That doesn't mean they don't. Again, I don't want film nerds to bombard me with all the movies that like The Godfather has huge gap and leaps in time in between scenes. But in general, movie storytelling is very, very compressed. So we had to find a hybrid of that with uh, horizontal storytelling, which is shit like this. In episode one, you are doing things that are going to pay off and load up the emotion of Isaiah and Sam in episode five, right? That's just a different kind of storytelling. And I'm very, very proud that we, I think we found a hybrid and a tremendous amount of thought, just those mechanics and a machine that could do that. A a bunch of thought got put into that. And if I'm being pretentious, then whatever. But we worked very hard and our little collective worked very hard on on that. Because that's the the idea that these are just... The idea that these episodes could be looked at as standalone movies is really fascinating to me because I was wondering whether or not you know, because in a, in, a, in a film, you probably wouldn't have done Carly, Walker, and the Power Broker, right? That would be probably like one too many people that would be on top of one another. But then with this show, you're allowed to almost have these three films happening within one series, right? But also think about it like 
it's the way you're able to address it mm-hmm. with Sharon, for instance, right? In a movie, you what you would have had is a better sleight of hand, right? No one would have people, some some people guessed pretty early on that Sharon's gonna be the power broker, right? And in a movie, you'd be like, well, fuck, it's ruined, because I figured that out in advance, because you're building towards it. But in a movie, you would have had the advantage of that urgent tide of storytelling would have hit the ball better. That said, in a horizontal story, right, you get to give Sharon those moments in Madripoor where the payoff of her being power broker, whether or not you guessed it, that don't matter. You know, you got to discover what had been going on with her after Civil War, how she felt about it so that the reveal of her being power broker has an emotional fact to it of like, oh, man, you know, these people left this woman hanging. I get it. You know what I'm saying? And so there's, a, there's almost a whole added dimension to the payoff. A question I've got for you is sort of a, a, a larger industry question, which is you've made this show now and it's been a congratulations, by the way. We didn't even say that. Yeah, we didn't even it's say like that. the number one show in the world. We should probably have started with that. Um, and you've managed to successfully, and I don't even know if I agree with this term, but I'll use it, Trojan horse a lot of ideas that are clearly important to you into, yeah. into it and have it be accepted. Often on this podcast, Chris and I are talking about, we're talking about specific shows, but we're also talking about the state of the industry and how there are more and more franchise shows. You know, Marvel's making a lot of shows, Star Wars shows. We're going to get these DC shows. There's a lot of this happening in the industry. And I guess I'm wondering, as someone who has successfully entered into that world and, you know, kept your voice and kept your values within it, are you optimistic about the potential for this, these sorts of stories to continue to be told, even as the industry changes and consolidation happens behind us? Yeah, I'm, 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 re- I'm, I'm worried and I'm hopeful. A lot of what's happening in TV, to me, had a detrimental effect in movies. You know what I'm saying? I think TV is just a different monster, though. So it can't contract the way movies do, the movie business did, because you have to service so many people in a sustained way. You just have to be more diverse in the storytelling. What I'm hopeful about is, you know, someone, I did this thing the other day with, uh, I think it was LA Times or whatever, where one of the questions was about, you know, move, superhero movies getting awards, right? And mm-hmm. that shouldn't be nobody's concern when they're creating. But I do think there's a movement happening in this space and movements are really, really good for any creative endeavor. Like if you look in rock and if you look at rock and roll and R and B in the early seventies, you know what I'm saying? Once it becomes a movement, people are creatively challenging each other and ingenuity happens and amazing shit happens. And if that happens in a space that has as big of a megaphone as the superhero space, you're really looking at storytelling having massive impact around the planet. You know what I'm saying? So that part, I'm very, very hopeful for. And I was, I'm glad you know, like I felt very much like my voice was heard in the series. And where I do worry is if people like, listen, man, you know, not to kiss people's ass, but the culture at Marvel is not an accident. And and they are not winning by accident. I've worked 15 years in features. There is nowhere like that place when you go indoors. And I don't know that everyone else is going to do that. I wonder if I'm going to get in trouble for this anecdote because it's about Kevin and it's a very positive one. Um, And I'm going to roll the dice with y'all. 
Um, but I'm not going to do it. I think we got Disney people on the call that you could tell us and they can tell us if we have to take it out. Okay. If you do know, it. If you're gonna, if, then, then I'll tell it to you because I think there are places in Hollywood history that have had amazing runs and then they fall apart. And for the people who love Marvel, Marvel has had a sustained run and Feige is deified. It's not just him. It's his collective, right? Of this core group of people that have been working together for a long time. And they have a bizarre shorthand that you cannot describe. The only way I can put it is if Nate and Feige are disagreeing on something, they've done this so many times. Nate knows when to push and Feige knows when to trust Nate, even if he doesn't agree. And that just is something that that can't be duplicated or faked. But I was sitting with uh, Kevin and I'm not going to tell you who the person was, but there's someone on the big screen who wanted a position on this series. And they asked him, uh, Kevin, if you had to put into like a paragraph why Marvel is so successful. You know what I'm saying? What would it be? And he thought about it in earnest and then he shrugged his shoulders. <laughs> that to me means he is completely open still creatively. And WandaVision is a testament to that, right? Normally, which again, I don't want to name the places that had runs, but think of those places where they start to go and do podcasts and say that they know. You mm. know what I'm saying? Well, this is how you're successful. Here's my list of rules of how to be awesome, right? Was, he shrugged his shoulders, you know what I'm saying? Was Julia Louis-Dreyfus satisfied with that answer to her question? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's pick up with Julia because that other kid's probably going to get cut out of this podcast. <laughs> but, no. but I'm telling you guys, look at the run that that dude had. For him to be able to do that, that's a big, that's a big deal. That means he is just as open today as he was when he didn't know. And that's why WandaVision and... Falcon and Winter Soldier, which are not even similar, are able to come out of the same place. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that the the, the one the thing I loved about this show is that it wasn't metaphorical. Like, you know, I think that like for it, it really shows growth and it really shows a, a like a, a trajectory for Marvel because when you watch some of the, the earlier Avengers stuff and they're talking about like Sokovia Accords, which Andy and I have joked about on this pod a little bit, but like, you know, you can derive like, oh, well, in the real world, this is what this means. It's about surveillance data. That's because Chris is pro-Sokovia Accords. I am That's against That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but what, what you can see, sense like the growth in the project, the fact that you're having the conversation between Isaiah Sams, besides the fact that it's just great writing, is that that's actually like lived experience for people. You know what I mean? Like that is actually, that's not a metaphor. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to like kind of hide that behind something. It's it's actually like, you're right. You're bringing, you're bringing the project to the real world rather than bringing the real world to the project. It, it is, look, man, we forget now how quickly shit is changing. Black Panther was a big fucking deal. You know what I'm saying? And it was the first time that someone, like there's a handful of brands that can compare to Marvel. You know what I'm saying? Like, out, let me step out of Hollywood. Like, we're talking levels of Coca-Cola, right? Mm -hmm. As far as what the reach is of this brand. So to me, whether or not there'd been black superheroes before, on this level, Black Panther is just a world-shattering event. Within Black Panther, 
is the prototype of where we were going to go, which is Killmonger and the hashtag Killmonger was right. You know what I'm saying? That Marvel dipped, not even dipped its toe, that Marvel just said, fuck it. Marvel just said, sorry, screw it. This is what we're going to do. And when it's going to be unabashedly <laughs> diverse and honestly black, you know what I'm saying? And that it got embraced by the fans, even the pissed off fans still embraced it. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Set the table for us to be able to get very, very real. And I think the purpose of saying we want these heroes to have an experience that is so honest that whether you where you fall on the political spectrum don't matter. You know what I'm saying? Just like it don't matter whether you watch CNN and you see certain events take place, you could deny them if you want. There is a fundamental truth to them. And that we were free to do that to me was a big deal because a superhero has to be relevant to the times. And I I think people do feel like times are changing. Do they always feel like that? Did we feel like when the new millennium came in, you know what I'm saying? Aliens were going to come down this planet for sure. <laughs> but there's a reality to the age of automation is coming. The reckoning of global warming is no longer a conversation. And I could go on and on. The pandemic, right? There are just all these things that are going to affect every single person on the planet. And our heroes and our storytelling need to be renewed. And I feel like we was free to do that by, by sending them home, by having them have these encounters that someone with a regular nine to five job with no job at all could relate to is a new way to position superheroes. Malcolm, you've been super generous with your time. So I just want to wrap up by going to a place that is working well for us, which is asking you stuff you can't talk about. Um, I've been good. I've been good at not talking about it. You've been really good. So I'll, I'll set it up and you can do whatever you like with it. It was reported this week that, that you are going to be writing a new Captain America movie, Captain America four with Anthony Mackie potentially in it. Without confirming or denying anything you're able to confirm or deny, I am curious in the broadest, most general strokes possible, what interests you potentially in a vertical storytelling exercise with Sam Wilson's Captain America? What, I, what is a I, different type of storytelling for that character? Well, it would be. It would be if whoever, if a movie like that were to happen, if Kevin were to confirm it. And we don't know. It, yeah, it would, it would be very different. You know what I'm saying? And it would be whoever did that would need to show up in earnest in letting it be what it needs to be. You know what I'm saying? As opposed to showing up with any baggage of what, you know, what happened in, in this series. But I don't know what's, I, I, in all honesty, if Ke- I would say this to people, if Kevin hasn't said it, it isn't. <laughs> it, 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 does whoever writes that movie, does he or she have to have a goatee and be seated in front of a purple background. <laughs> I don't know. Ke- Listen, Kevin Feige shrug. No. Kevin Feige shrug. It's the gift that we wish we had. Uh, uh, we'll I, I have no idea. I have no okay. idea. That's fair. Malcolm, thanks for being so generous with your time, man. And, and congratulations. Sorry for uh, being a little bit late. No problem. No man. worries. Congratulations on the show. Take I really care. appreciate it. 